Hey everyone, this is Mark Levine from the NYC Real Estate Podcast. I'm also the owner of EBMG, which is a New York City property management company. We manage over 100 co-op condo buildings in the New York City area. Um, today is a little bit of a departure from our normal programming. I was happy to sit in on a webinar today as the guest speaker. Um, it was led by Terry Rogers, who oversees and publishes brickunderground.com, and also Lindsay Liu, who we've had on the show before, who does the um, super application online. It's a SaaS product. So uh, super is a great tech platform for building owners and managers to kind of get on the same page and make sure that your building is taken care of properly. So if you want to look at that, go to hiresuper.com, H-I-R-E, super com. Um, we focused this webinar on budget season for 2024. We covered a lot of ground. It's about a 53-minute um, webinar. I'm going to put it right after the audio of this intro, and I hope that if you find this helpful, that you'll share it around and spread the word. That would be amazing. If you want to reach out to the show, you could do so at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to leave it over now to the webinar, and until next time, I hope you enjoy this. Well, uh, thank you everyone that's joined us today. Very excited about today's webinar on building a building budget. Uh, my name is Lindsay. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Super. We are a productivity platform for property management teams and their boards. In short, we're all about 10xing your property operations. Um, our software platform makes collaborating and proactive planning much more seamless for property managers and their boards. And we provide tools for everything from like decision-making and financial oversight to meeting planners and taking minutes. So if you're interested in learning more, we're doing everything we can right now to support our board customers with technology, despite the budget crunches, which we will talk about this year. So please reach out. Um, quick background on why I even started Super in the first place. I have been on the board of three different condos over the last decade plus. Um, and so for many of our board members in attendance today, I get it. Um, but yeah. I think this upcoming year specifically, you know, just to acknowledge it is tougher than it's been for a very long time. We've got this economic climate. We've got the actual changing climate. We have increasing costs across every category for managing properties. Um, they say that the first step to solving a problem is acknowledging that it exists. So I think that is something that we're here to do today and realizing that properties do have a problem. The cost of labor, insurance, materials, staying compliant. Um, if you're in cities like New York, borrowing money, all of this is going up. And in many cases, it is far outpacing inflation as well. So that's the reason we brought this group here together today that we want to help you understand how buildings can make responsible budgeting decisions on operating costs as well as capital expenditures in this environment. So really excited to collaborate with Terry Rogers, the publisher and founder of Brick Underground and Mark Levine, the principal at the management company EDMG, one of our clients, um, and also a manager of almost 200 properties across New York and beyond. So real expert here on running healthy uh, buildings and supporting boards in that mission. Before I turn it over to these folks, you will notice that there is a little Q&A area of this Zoom webinar. You can write your questions in as you go. We will make sure to spend ample time at the end of your questions. Um, and uh, so just make sure to pop those in and we'll get to those at the end. Um, Mark, we have a ton of questions for you, so I hope Great. you're ready. Uh, I'm ready. 
Right. And then Terry, do you want to kick us off really quickly with an intro before we go on and grill Mark? Sure, sure. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, I'm Terry Rogers, the founder and publisher of BrickUnderground.com. And in case you're new to us, we are a trusted online resource for New Yorkers navigating our crazy real estate market here in New York. Um, so renting, buying, selling, renovating, and living in multifamily buildings. And I am thrilled to announce that last week, actually, we launched a section especially for co-op and condo board members. We aim to provide tools and tips and insights to help you make more informed decisions for your building and um, for your residents. To check it out, just go to brickunderground.com and click on boards and buildings up top in the navigation bar. And uh, one more thing, I would love to hear from you uh, with any story ideas about what we can cover. Um, what challenges are your buildings facing? Um, do you have success stories that we could share and perhaps inspire other co-op and condo buildings around the city? Feel free to reach out to me directly, Terry, T-E-R-I at brickunderground.com or use the contact form on our website. And um, now to the matter at hand, as Lindsay mentioned, and all of you know too well, buildings are facing unprecedented challenges uh, in budgeting for 2024. I'm excited to dive into it with Mark and tap into his expertise. So Mark on the hot seat, it is yes. budgeting season and um, I'm sure you're in the thick of it with your buildings. And I would like to maybe take a step back, first of all, if you could tell us what the ideal budgeting process looks like in your opinion. Sure, um, thank you for having me. First of all, um, it's a pleasure to speak to everybody and hopefully we get all of your questions answered. Um, so most buildings that we manage are on a calendar year, um, which from a company, like from a management company standpoint makes for our late September and October to be very busy. Um, if we've had a building in our ecosystem for more than a year we have those hard numbers for that full year we can you know pull it out of our data that we have um, natively and we could kind of build what we feel would be the next year and that's taking a look at all the expenses that we're going to talk about during this hour um, so I won't go into it too much here but if it is some um, a building that we're not managing for a long time and we don't have a lot of historical context that's when the board is going to be really important the treasurer of the board is going to be super important um, also the accountant working off of those last audited financial numbers mixed with the last budget that was approved those are the um, pieces of data that we're going to compile to make our first draft a go the intention within our firm and we start usually around um, september 15th for our budgeting so we'll take the first month let's say from september 15th to around october 15th we'll do all of our drafts We'll send those over to all of our um, property managers first to take a look at. The property managers, of course, are the ones who have the extensive experience within the building. They can know, you know, based on the prior performance of the last year, let's say, is the boiler going to need an excess of, you know, normal repairs and maintenance on the next year, just as an example. So they're going to really fine tune all of that data. And then once the draft is done, it goes off to the board, um, whether it's through a committee of the treasurer and some other board members or just treasurer themselves or the full board and then we go through it but our intention is to have to make sure that there's at least a 30-day buffer between when you're going to initiate your increase which um, for accounting purposes should be if you're on a calendar year january 1st and when we can actually advise all the shareholders or unit owners of it um 
in our budgeting process, you know, something that we look at is like the fixed costs and the variable costs. So fixed costs in my um, world would be contracts that we have a set expense for the year. And that could be including um, management fees, accountant fees. Um, we know, generally speaking, what the real estate taxes are. I know that we're going to probably dive into tax certiorari proceedings later here. So we can talk about that. Um, there may be a little bit of movement, but we know what the number is going to be. Um, elevator contracts, boiler service contracts, um, sprinkler testing, all of that, we know what that will be. Um, there are certain variable costs that we also have to be cognizant of, and those are the things that we could guess. And just the, the biggest part to remember about a budget, it's a tool to guess, to make the best estimate based on the information that you have today of what your um, expenses will be for the next year. So you may not win every year. You may lose some years. Um, you may win. Great. You have a surplus, but mm -hmm. we're really trying to tie it into the actual numbers and variable costs in my mind. Um, costs are going to end up with an initial amount, as I said, best guess, um, boiler, elevator repairs outside the scope of the service agreements. You've got fuel and heating, you've got oil and electricity, um, legal costs, um, some variable costs are going to be due to the amounts of usage, but um, some are due to market conditions and some may be considerations for both. You know, you, you may find that the environment of um, heating oil is changing because of what's going on in the Middle East, but it might also be an unseasonably cold winter. So now you're getting smacked mm -hmm. with higher usage and higher amounts. So those are the things that we're kind of putting into place with all of our schedules. Is this the only time of year you should be revisiting your budget and your financial performance as a building? I don't think so. Each board should have the documentation um, and the capability through their managing agent um, to review at least the base financials monthly. What we're providing every month is a detailed um, comparison to your budget in the income statement. That's going to show how you're performing on each line, um, you know, the, the GL codes of repairs and maintenance, and you've got insurance and you've got other, you know, items that we kind of compare there. And it's going to show performance through um, both the, you know, the month to month and also over the year as it compares to the budget. And you'll see variances of are we overperforming, are we underperforming? And those are the things that you could look at. I think that you could do monthly um, inside the monthly financial reports beyond that, like budget review is going to be also a set of, you know, your cash balances, your open arrears, your open payables, um, anything that is going to be um, needing to be monitored by the building's financial um, oversight committee. Um, that could also include all the invoices that were paid, copies of them, and also check registers. Um, I would say that each board should at least look at things on a quarterly to semi-annual basis in a better, more fine detailed approach, because if we're seeing that um, you know, six months through the year that we're having an exceptionally, you know, high repair and maintenance cost. And now the, the budget has blown because the expectation is if we've tracked this out and over the next six months, we're going to be, let's say, 15% over what we expected. Um, we want to make sure that we don't run into a deficit towards the end of the year. And that if we need to do a mid-year adjustment, even though it's not popular um, with shareholders and unit owners to pay more, I think the boards may in an example of if we can, if we have to raise it, you know, one or 2% over the next six months, instead of doing a six or 7%
for 2024 or 2025, depending on when you're kind of looking at this mid-year, um, those little steps can help to navigate the board's understanding of the financials, but also take away some of the heat from the shareholders and unit owners who beyond their housing and they're, you know, you're dealing with a lot of the same cost increases on your own personal life that the buildings are, are you know, incurring too. So as much transparency that we could have behind the numbers and as much as we can understand those throughout the year is going to make a huge difference. Makes sense. So looking ahead, what are some of the biggest adjustments and changes you're seeing with the building budgets that you're building right now? So, you know, we're at a unique time in my management history. Um, this is my 25th year doing it. And I don't think that I've ever really seen everything stacked against a building. And this is just building portfolio wide. Um, you're seeing increases, you know, of, you're always going to see water and sewer increase. I think the the latest one was close to four and a half percent. Property taxes, I believe on average are up about 8%. Um, utilities, we earmark about five to 10%. I'll go through a little bit more on that side a little bit later. Um, and also insurance coverage is really the... Um, the Achilles heel for a lot of our buildings and insurance coverages have been terrible. Um, they've been, the policies are becoming harder to get. They've been um, less in terms of coverage with higher premiums than we've ever had before. And there's a lot of reasons why, which we could discuss also, but um, between those three or four things, that's starting to like pop out your budget. Um, normal supplies. I just, you know, every um, August and September, I pull just as one example, every one of my property managers and we do a bulk um, bid out for snowmelt. And it may seem like a small thing, but snowmelt for every building in our portfolio, you know, in heavy usage years, we're not ordering it by the bag, we're ordering it by literally the truckload. Um, and the price on just snowmelt from what I've seen, we used to lock in at like $13 a bag for a 50 pound bag. Now we're looking at, you know, 22, $23 a bag. So that's one thing. And then you look at energy, you look at Con Ed, you look at National Grid, um, you look at just everything else. And we're going to get into, you know, prevailing wage issues. And suddenly these are also going to be constricting you a little bit further. Um, insurance requirements from the building's perspective is also changing the game. So if we look at not even insurance company coverage for policies for your building, we now have insurance companies kind of dictating to us saying, you can only use vendors that have a certain level of, and this is in every insurance company and every building, like it's slowly creeping up to there. And we're, we're seeing which companies are playing a little bit better with different buildings, but um, we have small buildings where the insurance company is like, you can't have a vendor in here that doesn't have at least a $5 million umbrella. They can't have X, Y, and Z exclusions in their policy. Um, so what that's doing is, and this is again, not just one building, this is a whole host of buildings. It's basically, um, creating a marketplace that's shrinking because all of the vendors that we used to have good relationships with and be able to get cheaper pricing because their overhead was lower. Um, now the requirements are changing, which means that they are now being squeezed out of working because they can't afford to carry the insurance that's required by your building's insurance company. So the cost is being assumed by the building. Um, and then you can't even use that vendor anymore because he is not willing to 
get that ins insurance where he has to carry that now for the next year um, just for that one project. And, you know, this may change over time, not in the sense of what the needs are of your building, but the um, the way that the, that the contractors carry this insurance, maybe they may be forced to, or they may be forced to go out of business, or they may be forced to um, combine forces with other people, which, you know, that also shrinks the market and that creates more leverage for them to say, you know, we're going to raise our prices. Insurance is definitely a really big one just because you're basically seeing in some cases a, a decrease in coverage, but an increase in premium as well. So, and obviously, you know, just thinking about our backyard here with all of the climate related disasters, right? The flooding and, and in New York, it's almost impossible to get flood insurance, right? At this point. Um, so it's no surprise that these premiums are rising. Is this just a reality that buildings need to live with? Like, are we just saying you have to increase your budgets here on forward for that? Yeah, we're in what's known as a hard market on the insurance side. Um, I think that it's going to last at least a few more years. I don't see any way for it to go down. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's only because of climate related um, issues, although that's a big part of it. Um, two weeks or three weeks ago, I think it was September 29th, we had a big flooding event because we had an insane amount of rain all over the New York City area, specifically in a lot of my Brooklyn buildings. Um, there were a, a whole, we have, I think, about 10 or 15 buildings within one little concentrated area, and almost every building flooded, um, every basement flooded, every boiler had issues. So, um, you know, we're putting in all of these insurance claims, of course, because the building doesn't want to pay out off of their own pocket, but it's going to just lead to this cycle of increasing premiums over time, um, denials of coverages. You know, whenever we do a bid out on insurance, we look at five years worth of um, losses. So we ask for loss runs for all policies. And as soon as they see a pattern, you know, you've put in this claim, you've put in that claim, you've put in this claim, that's going to kind of make it a little bit harder for you. Um, we're seeing a lot of our buildings showing about a 20 to 30% year over year increase for insurance coverage, um, especially on the umbrella coverages, those have constricted even further. Um, umbrella coverage, well, uh, let me go back to insurance companies. One of the things that they do when you look to switch or even on their yearly inspections, you know, there's a few inspections that you do every year. That's one for your mortgage. If you're a co-op, especially, and you have an underlying mortgage, the bank typically sends an inspector. The same with the insurance company. They want to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to keep the building as safe. And, um, you know, they want to protect their investment. They're, you know, they have collateral or they have an investment in you as an insurance company to not, you know, leave you in a position where you're, they don't want to have any risk associated with it. So they'll go through. And a lot of the insurance companies now, especially it ha started happening maybe about 10 years ago or so. If you have federal um, Pacific uh, circuit breakers or you have stab locks, which are the old, you know, they're fire hazard, they won't insure you. They won't allow you to change. Some Sometimes if you don't have appropriate emergency lighting, even if you don't have to do it by code, you know, if you pre-existed the building code and you never upgraded, that might be, you know, something that you have to do. Um, but insurance companies now are more likely to say no. Um, even within my own portfolio in the past few years, I can tell you there's been a number of workplace accidents and not with my employees, but, you know, we are looking at a lot of facade jobs right now. I've had um, several injuries. We had, unfortunately, we had one building where there was a workplace death, um, you know, and these, as you get into the city's guidance and the city is basically telling us right now, you know, local laws are great. 
but just wait, you know, you're going to have to do um, more of them. You know, you're on local law 11, for example, you know, it used to be a lot easier to get through a cycle um, for buildings that are over six stories within the last cycle or two, they've really made it difficult um, in terms of, and all rightly so, like they want to keep the building safe. They want to keep the public safe. They want to make sure that nobody gets hurt, injured or killed. Um, so what they're doing is they're saying that you have to do wider reviews. You have to do more close-up reviews and all of that just amounts to more time on the facade of your building. And that's going to, you know, have more of a tendency to have injuries or um, accidents. You know, we've had fires in several buildings where contractors were working and, you know, it happens and those are insurance issues. Um, so they really want to make sure that we're making sure that um, we are covering the building as best as possible. Um, so as we see a lot of these accidents, the umbrella market has really closed and they're saying, we don't really have the ability to do it. And one thing actually that the umbrella companies are starting to do, and this is really something that I've noticed this year, they're diving into each building's violations. And if you have even like one or two violations, if you don't have like that in process of trying to go through and cancel them out and work with an expediter, if you have to, or go through the court system or the, you know, the hearings, um, they're just disavowing coverage and they're saying we're not interested and we're not placing coverage. So wow. there are some buildings that we have that, um, you know, due to workplace accidents in the neighborhood or due to whatever it may be, they're, they're looking at, when we used to have market of a hundred million dollar umbrella years ago, I have one building in Queens that can't even get more than 2 million for, you know, I think to go from 1 million to 2 million was an extra $35,000 premium a year, which is nuts. Wow. But umbrella coverage is super important. It covers you on top of your general policy. So if there is something that's going to be needed to be covered, you want to make sure that you have that. Um, obviously, we talk about insurance as a whole other thing, but you know, for any board, just make sure that you have um, what's called directors and officers insurance, and that will protect you as a board member to make sure that you can't personally be sued or liable for any good business, you know, made uh, any good faith business uh, decisions that were made. You know, you, obviously you can't get do anything that's discriminatory or that you have a conflict on without you know properly acknowledging it. But for, you know, we've seen tons of buildings be sued, tons of boards be sued. And as long as you're acting in good faith and on the behalf of all shareholders, the unit owners, you should be covered. But just make sure you have that in place. Are any of your buildings going without insurance? Because of no, that? no. Okay. You, you know, especially on the co-op side, you have mortgages, um, you have underlying mortgages and they require a certain level of insurance. Um, when you do have people buying into the building as well, there are times that they'll come up and they'll say, um, you know, from the lender's bank, your insurance um, is not up to what we as a, um, a bank require for our collateral of the shares or collateral of the, you know, the unit, if it's a, a condo and they'll, they'll ask for an increase on a certain line item. Usually it doesn't cost that much. You know, we're talking about peanuts in the grand scope of the policy. Um, but we would never let any of our clients go without insurance. I think we've seen too many bad things go wrong um, <laughs> that, you know, even if you have no insurance for a day, that's a huge red flag. You should never do it. Um, just make sure one point on insurance for the board members that are listening, we always recommend that you do go out and bid out your insurance. And you can do that through your managing agent, through your insurance broker. But I also caution you not to do it yearly. Um, these are insurance companies make their money off of long-term policy holding. So they're not making the money 
that they intend to make off of the first year of having you as a client, you know, having your building covered. Um, so when buildings do shop around, that becomes a red flag for carriers and you become to be one of those buildings that gets a reputation as not either staying too long or shopping mm -hmm. out competitively too often. And you'll start to see that you'll just be creating an artificial constriction of your own market. Um, so maybe every three years you go out to your broker and say, you know, okay, can you remarket this out to all the, you know, carriers and see what you find? But um, I would caution you against it. It is, you know, it's counterintuitive to say, don't, you know, don't chop it out because you need to do it, but you're only going to be shooting yourself in the foot if you do it too often. That, that is a great tip. Um, when it comes to planning for energy costs, what are you recommending that uh, your buildings do? Is it worth it to purchase energy in advance and lock in a price? Yeah, um, I said before that budgeting is a tool. Um, I always like to know based on past history, how much, if you're still on oil, you know, how many gallons you use, um, if you, you know, how many therms you use of gas. So if you can take historical context over the last few years and you can shop that out and before the season, you can lock in your energy rates. Um, that is a tool that you can use to settle your budget in a way that you feel comfortable with. I think that, you know, just like I said before, sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're going to lose. Of course, we've always had years where we've locked in at, just as an example, like $4 a gallon, and then suddenly the market cratered and you're at three and you're like, ah, I'm stuck for the next 12 months. I could have <laughs> gone the, the next year, it goes the other way. And you're like, yes, we won. So you're never going to like feel that comfortable feeling of like we won over a long scale of time, but you will have a tendency to at least acknowledge that we are projecting this cost and that's what we want to do. We want to make the right projection. We may not like the price that we're at, but we have the projection. Um, fuel oil right now, compared to last year, is down about 50 cents. Um, so it is down. But on the Con Ed side of things, they put through a 14% increase for gas and electric delivery um, after a 14% last year. And I think next year they're asking to go about 18%. Um, so these are continuing to drive up. And on it's really important to understand that, you know, in terms of electric and gas and fuel, you know, you're not looking at the same view over the year. So when we're looking at budgeting tool and we say, okay, this is broken down over 12 months and the variance report comes in and you're looking, okay, and in February, we're like super high, you know, compared to the budget. You have to remember that it's a curve, right? It dips. So mm -hmm. from let's say January to March, you're using about, um, 55% or maybe a little bit less of your total year's um, energy spend. And then in April through like October, it kind of dips down and maybe collectively that's probably about like 25%, 30%. And then the rest of the year, October through December is also another high. Um, so while you're looking at these variance reports, especially when you come into June, you know, if you have a hot water heater, that's not running off of your boiler, you're saving money there because you're not using, let's say you're on oil, you're not using your oil, bo you know, boiler all year long and you could kind of carve out a use for it um, you're saving on energy you're saving on um, fuel um, but you have to just look at things in in the way that they actually go um, so as i said i think looking at it from a lock-in perspective just for peace of mind that's the right mm -hmm. thing to do um, 
if you have an ESCO, which is an energy service company, um, just keep an eye out because a lot of the contracts that we'll look at on the ESCOs, especially when we have a new building coming in, um, we'll look at all the contracts and we'll see that there was an ESCO in process, which means that you have an alternative supplier. Um, and then, or yeah, an alternative service company. And if you don't look at the fine tooth, um, you know, writing over there on, on the on the contract, if you just let it auto renew, the prices go up insanely each year, year over year, and they're completely out of whack with the market and you could be wasting money. So um, mm -hmm. we always keep track of that on the ESCO side. But if you are using an ESCO, make sure that you're, uh, you're properly in contract. That's another great tip. Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit, Local Lot 97, the elephant in the room. Um, 2024 is when the penalties of $268 per ton of CO2 above the limit start to get enforced for buildings over 25,000 square feet. Um, even if the fines today are low, they increase every five years. And it's estimated that 25% of buildings in the condition they are now will fail to meet the new emission emissions limits and 80% will fail in 2030. But now buildings can show a good faith effort to um, meet to comply. So how should buildings be thinking about compliance with Local Law 97? So most of the buildings in our portfolio have a $0 exposure for that first 2024 um, benchmark. And those that we do have exposure, we're working with them on. Um, once we go over to 2030, that's a little bit of a different story. I would say a, a good majority of them have penalties built in, and this is going to be a few different ways to look at it. You know, when you know what the penalties are, and this all also relates to your um, energy grade signage, all of that work that we're putting into compiling the data. And if you're over 25,000 square feet, then you've got um, the letter grade. Um, I think it's A, B, C, D. And then N, if I'm not mistaken, I don't remember <laughs> if there was an F, maybe it's A, B, C, D, F, and <laughs> no. uh, N is no report. Um, so you're going to see if you don't have that up on your building, you should, that's a violation um, if you don't. And we actually have a company that we use to do all of our data and then they actually place the, the stuff up. So we know that that's taken care of, but um, this isn't going to affect many buildings, at least on the first go around. So you do have a little okay. bit of time. Um, so during the yeah. first year, we do recommend that you begin planning with a company that can kind of analyze the state of your current um, building and see what the scope of work would be for the cost to come into compliance. And I think that's where that decisions could be made. A lot of what we're talking about is like factoring cost versus, you know, um, penalties. Um, if we know that there's going to be a super, super small penalty in 2030 because you're in good shape, does it make sense to spend you know, excessive money to bring your building up to what they would consider to be compliance if it's not going to fundamentally alter, um, you know, or maybe meet near what the penalties would be if it's like a $2,000 a year penalty, does it make sense to spend even $10,000 on, mm -hmm. you know, getting your building to a certain spot. But anyway, that, I know I'm getting off track. Um, so you do have to have a good faith effort to kind of delay these penalties, at least in the first category of 2024. Um, so if you are a building that is showing that you're going to have penalties, it's not just that you go to the city and say, we're working on it. Um, you do have to make a good faith effort and you have to hire a company that's going to engage in a review. Um, but you also have to have an actionable decarbonization plan in place. Um, you have to have professionals on hand, you have to have the financial plans, you have to have timetables, and you have to have a 
clear t uh, path towards completion. Um, we're so new into this law. Um, reductions, as I said, are coming in 2024 20, 20, and 2030. They want to like take you down 80% on your carbon emissions, and that's what they're really focusing on. Um, there's been a lot of outcry, and the two-year um, window has really just been something that came up about a month ago. So as you could see, we're literally, this is how the city operates. We're literally three months away from um, the law coming into play and there's still confusion. There's still changes. There's still um, shifting timetables and guidelines. So this may still continue. Um, if a building takes part in the good faith effort delays, just know that they won't be able to participate in what's called renewable energy credits to offset their carbon emissions. So there are some handcuffs being placed on buildings that need extra time. Um, the, so the crux of this is that the city is going to want to have you um, do this. And this also plays into what's called Local Law 87, which is in every 10-year um, filing that you have to do for buildings that are greater than 50,000 square feet. Um, if you're in between 25 and 50, um, that's just the energy grade. If you're 87, based on the last number of your block number, um, that's the year every 10 years that you have to file with an engineer, a large report on the status of your building, the energy efficiency, if you have to do any retrofitting. A lot of the low hanging fruit has been, probably already been done of changing your light bulbs out to um, LEDs, you know, um, insulating all of your piping. Maybe it's changing your windows. Maybe it's upgrading to a hot water heater that's um, going to save you the fuel. Um, so all these things have kind of been wrapping up a little bit over the last 10 years to get you into the position where the city can now just beat you overhead and find you. And I will say that this, I don't believe applies to any city owned buildings or city, um, yeah, any city owned buildings, whether they be residential or um, commercial. So as typical with the city is do as I say, not as I do. I'm shifting gears again. You mentioned prevailing wage earlier. Uh, and I've actually heard of some buildings, conversations with managers as well as boards that are choosing not to pay prevailing wage and take the hit on their tax assessments. So they're basically making a trade-off there, right? But first, can yeah. you just explain what prevailing wage is to our audience? And then let's talk about the pros and cons for taxes. Sure. So there's a few buildings that this doesn't apply to first. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, union buildings, they are assumed to be paying prevailing wage because they have contracts with the union. Um, so that's not in play. Um, also, an average assessed value, um, well, exempt buildings, if you have an average assessed value of $60,000 or less per apartment, or, or your building is less than 30 units in size, or well, you do have to actually play into this if you're less than 30 units, but you have an assessed value that's more than $100,000 um, per apartment. And remember, this is a market value. This is assessed value, which is completely different. So your taxable assessment will tell you, you know, if you take that total number and divide that by a number of apartments, you'll see what your taxable assessable value is, assessed value is. Um, once you get to the over 30 units, that's where it applies. Um, this is essentially the city or the state is telling us that they want to make sure that all of your building employees are being paid a fair living wage. Um, and one of the, um, you know, the carrots that they have is the tax, uh, the tax abatement, the co-op, the condo abatement, um, also star veterans disability. So this is a way of tying it in. Um, what the city is saying is you have to pay. Um, I think I saw that the 2024 numbers, um, 
for a porter, it's starting around 20, almost $28 an hour. Um, for a handy person, it's almost $31 an hour. And then for the supers, it's more um, supers. It gets a little complicated because you've also got to factor in if they're a live-in super with the value of the apartment. Um, but this is something that you have to do yearly. You have to provide an affidavit saying that I as a board or we as a board are going to be paying our um, employees and all vendors a prevailing wage. And in doing so, I am allowing where the city is going to allow me to get the benefit of the abatement. The abatement discussion is going to happen differently in different buildings. Um, I think it's more on the co-op side that it's going to be more of a, an issue with the shareholders. They want to see that abatement. They're used to seeing that abatement. Um, most co-ops are more restrictive than condos in terms of subleasing out units because the theory of a co-op is that it's a cooperative corporation. We really like having our shareholders live in the building. And we don't want it to be an income producing property for those. Um, of course, there are sponsors that still have or holders of unsold shares that have blocks of apartments in their buildings. Um, but the reality is everything that's been sold, they want to actually have in-house um, where, so there's a few different um, ways that you could get the abatement or be qualified by the city. And it's usually um, if you're a primary resident in the apartment. So that means you can't own it in an LLC. Um, you can't own it in a trust. You have to be there. You can't sublease it out. You can't live somewhere else. You can't have your license with another address and you can't own more than three apartments in a building. Um, so this kind of even is more likely to be in a co-op because in a condo, it's more of an open season. It's more of a, an investment tool for a lot of people, a lot of especially the newer condos that we have. The unit owners have never lived there. They've bought an occupied apartment that's, you know, leasing and they continue to do that. They often shield their identities through LLCs. Um, that's what the city wants to avoid. Um, so the difference of the co-op question versus the condo question is, I think the co-op is more likely to play into this prevailing wage um, so that they still get the benefit of the abatement. Um, so that we're all clear, the abatement is an adjustment on your taxes. It's not like um, the city gives the management agent a check. Let's say the abatement is $100,000 that we have to distribute across the shareholders that they specifically said that we could give it to. We actually just get the number and then we have to pay it out of the operating account. So 99.9% .9 of the time, what co-ops will do, um, they will hand out the assessment on a dollar for dollar basis make sure that each shareholder is getting what they are entitled to by law, because that's what we legally have to do. So we can't just take that money back, right? We have to create an assessment, but the assessment has to be fair and it has to be distributed across all shareholders evenly. Um, so let's say it works out to $2 a share. Even if you are a shareholder or a holder of unsold shares or a sponsor who doesn't get the abatement because you don't qualify for it, you still get hit with the assessment. So it is still going to be an out of pocket. Um, a lot of the condos that we have, especially down in like the lower Manhattan area, um, a little bit more of you know, new construction, um, you've got people that um, don't really necessarily care about the tax break. You know, for if they they're living in fifteen million dollar apartments, they don't care about saving the you know the few thousand dollars on the, the abatement. Right or wrong, that's the decision that they have to make, um, and they will choose to not sign the um, prevailing wage affidavit, not collect the abatement, and just kind of go on their merry way. Um, one important thing is you can opt in any year. So if let's say this year you didn't 
uh, opt into it next year on the affidavit, you could say we do, and then you could be eligible again for the abatements. Um, one thing that I, I did want to mention, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, I'm sure it'll come back to me. <laughs> Sorry, I went on for too long. What about, um, you know, speaking of taxes, petitioning tax assessments annually, there's a small fee, right, to do this. Oh, before yeah. we get in, it just came back. Oh, Hold on. There it is. Okay. <laughs> all right so the important part of prevailing wage is also that it doesn't just apply to your employees if you're really taking this seriously and you're signing the affidavit it's going to apply to vendors that you use inside of your building so it's going to require us as companies and the boards you know as in essence um to make sure that our vendors are paying their employees prevailing wages because if not then you're sliding the system um some buildings have gone around you know the thought that they could be smart and say okay we're not gonna we're not gonna have a super we're gonna have a company we're gonna have like a service company it's gonna be cheaper for us we're gonna save on taxes we're gonna save on you know insurance or what you know adp we don't have to pay them but guess what if you're audited for you know some way it's going to come up that you know they weren't paying their prevailing their employees prevailing wages so this is something important that you also work you have to work with vendors that um are actually paying their people um the prevailing wage um so you lindsay you were mentioning tax assessments um obviously i said that i think on average it was eight percent increase for property taxes um projected um I think that um, protesting your taxes yearly is a duty that you should have by virtue of just routine. You know, we're going to do it no matter what. It's about $100 or $150 to file. They have what's called tax certiorari firms, and their sole purpose is to like literally just take your information, compile it with neighborhood data, go to court, sit with the mediator, try to protest and fight that you're overassessed. And the way that they work is on contingency. Um, so you're not paying them beyond the fee to at least do the paperwork initially, which is again, like a hundred bucks, you're paying them based on your savings. So it's really, and it's like, you know, a personal injury attorney, if they're, they're worth what they bring you. So if you are going to save a higher percentage, they're in, they're in there, they're trying to fight for you because they know that the more that they save for you, it's based on the savings, their cost or their fee, they're going to make more, um, typical, um, charges that we've seen for those throughout my portfolio. I track what each one does. It's like between 15 and like 25%. Um, I think if you can get a company in there for 15% of the savings, that's a great savings for you or a great fee for you. Um, so it's worth it. You know, I, I've done talks on this before with other people. It's not an exact science. You're literally, literally pleading your case to one person. If he had a good day, if he had a good morning, he didn't have his morning coffee yet, you know, that could come into play. It's not like you can go and, you know, protest it again and say, but they were biased. You're just handing them data. They're making a decision. I think it's 50-50. You may win some years. I have a lot of times where the, um, the lawyer will come back and say to us, you know, here's the offer. We don't recommend that you take it. We recommend refiling next year. So we will kind of take that into consideration and move with that. But yes, as a, a standard and for condos, if we have the ability to through the bylaws um because condos are different every one of the condo units has its own block and lot number um we'll ask the board if they want us to file on their behalf as like a block of unit owners um and the same thing happens and hopefully if 
if it is taken um, and the deal is approved, then you will see that kind of come over um, your specific um, real estate tax statement that comes quarterly. Well, amid all of the increasing costs that we've talked about so far, is there anywhere buildings can turn to find cost savings? It's hard. I think working with a company um, that can maximize savings is kind of a good start. You know, we've got scale now. I mean, in my company, we've got in the like in the five boroughs, we have about 100 buildings on Long Island. We have um, close to 70. Um, so we are at a point which is different than when I started 25 years ago, where, you know, we were kind of trying to get anybody to work with us. But now we've got vendors that want to kind of step out of their way to work with us because of our scale. Um, so we can initiate savings that way. There are certain things that we do, and I would imagine that um, hopefully you, if you're not managed by us, that your management company is doing. I keep tabs on things that affect our portfolio um, as a whole. Um, you know, I've got every elevator listed in my portfolio that goes out once a year to an elevator witnessing company because you know those are costs that we can try to knock down a little bit um we're not going to change the elevator service company but we are going to try to get the best price for the witness to oversee your category one test um to make sure that the periodic tests run smoothly and those are things that are required every year but you need a separate company to oversee that um we're doing the same thing with our local law 152 gas testing you know every four years you have to do that it's the center test that um, for all common areas, but it could be expensive. It's by building identification number, which is also called a bin number. So even if you're just one block and lot, you could have multiple bin numbers, which means you may need multiple tests. Um, mm -hmm. That's traditionally, let's say between $1,500 and $2,000 per test. And um, that has to be done every four years. It's based on your community board number. Um, the same thing goes for backflow testing. Like those are the things that we scale. Everything that is, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in that bucket, each service, Let's try to bid that out. Let's try and try to save. If I said snow melt before is up uh, $10 because we do, and I know that because I just did that, because um, we do bulk bidding um, of certain building supplies. So everything that you could do, there are certain things that you can't control. You can't control those hard costs. You can't, con the variable costs that we were speaking about before are the things that you could try to, um, you know, hammer down as much as possible. But short of not providing heat, not providing hot water, you're going to have, you know, and that's obviously a violation. Don't do that. You're going to be in a position where it is going to start costing you money. But trying to chip away at some of these ancillary expenses that um, you can have access to or get dinged with, that's going to be um, the best thing. And just work with partners, you know, management companies, service providers that um, are in it for the right reasons. They're in it for the long run. They're not in it for the quick buck because those are the companies that are going to kill you and leave you. And then you're going to be stuck holding a bag without a lot of money in it, but you're going to have to do more work. So just get all the professionals on, you know, in your ecosphere in play, um, have them work on your behalf and try to really drill down on all these um, little side costs that you can save money on. Are there any new revenue streams that you've seen? Like years ago, it was renting out your roof for cell towers, um, um, things like that. Yeah, it's hard because you guys are like, as a building, um, you guys are a closed economic um, like world, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're an economic system. So the shareholders or the unit owners are the primary source of revenue and income, whether it's through maintenance and assessments or it's through amenities, um, storage, parking, laundry, 
party room rentals. We've seen that um, many buildings, especially newer ones, just don't have that much like empty space to reconfigure to bring in new sources of incomes. You have a lot of those like 1950s and 1960s buildings where they've got, you know, just empty basement areas, just like built, you know, rooms and rooms and rooms. Um, but it costs money to upgrade those rooms, to make them code compliant for whatever use you're looking at. Um, you can do that. You have to offset the way, you know, offset the cost to, to see how much is this going to bring in like anything else. Um, you can do solar, you could do um, rooftop cell service. I have a lot of building, you know, we're like 20 years into cell service. So if you don't see, if you don't have a, a roof antenna system up there, either it's been not approved in the past or they're just not interested in your space. I have a lot of um, leases that were turned into long-term leases on roof spaces where they've said, okay, for like 50 or a hundred years, we'll take over your space and we'll give you $300,000 now. I don't recommend that unless you're at the point where you have all this work to do and you can't because you can't afford it and you need this infusion of cash. And it's kind of like, it's hurting tomorrow you. It's not hurting today you. Um, but that's like something that the board say, well, that that sounds like a tomorrow problem. You know, like let's get through just keeping the building safe. You know, we're at a point and I know we're getting close on time, so I'll wrap it up. But we're at a point where you've got um, buildings that have been deferring maintenance for a very long time because of cost. But on the other flip side of it, you've got an interest environment where for new mortgages, you're looking at close to like six and a half percent for line of credit usage, you could be up at 9%, which I've seen in some buildings. So how are you supposed to do this without creating new revenue streams, getting that money in there, taking care of your building properly. And that's leading to a lot of people having to leave these buildings because they can't afford it anymore. They've, they've been there for 40 years. They're not in the same economic um, space as the people that have bought in, you know, at the much higher apartment prices these days. Um, so this is that constant internal battle that not only, you know, the building has to go through, but it, the shareholders and the unit owners on an individual basis. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm going to flip it to some of the questions that we haven't answered along the way um, with some folks here. So one question was around if the board decides to limit claim amounts on insurance overall, can that translate to more affordable premiums? Um, I haven't seen limiting claim amounts. I've seen limiting claims. Um, you can change your deductibles. Um, that's a way of, you know, if you have a higher deductible, then you have a lower premium because then the, you're offsetting the risk to the insurance company. So they're willing to come off. So I, I would say more about that. Um, take a look with your insurance broker. Um, you know, if anybody needs any references for any of these types of services that we've talked about today, feel free to email me. Um, but in terms of looking at it, I would say look at both um, maybe the process and have an internal dialogue with the board and set up some parameters that a we're not going to put an insurance claim out for until it hits this amount because we're comfortable with that or look at it from the perspective of okay um let's change our deductible amounts maybe go through it with a fine-tooth comb if you don't need a specific type of insurance coverage although i would say uh, it's better to be overinsured than underinsured um just from you know past experience what about on prevailing wage? We have one question that says their board was discussing and it boiled down to, in addition to the increase in wages themselves, quote, we don't want to file the affidavit because there's too much compliance paperwork. Do you think that's true? No, I think it's just an affidavit that you sign and you send. Uh, that To me, that is the least of the compliance paperwork that I have to do yearly. So just do it. Okay, great. <laughs> Um, potential savings with solar energy on residential apartments and buildings long-term. So what's your take on solar? 
Um, you know, we're, I'm kind of just getting into this. I was actually talking today with one of my, um, solar people, James Slattery from Slattery Energy. Um, so it's, I don't have the total information on this. It's not my wheelhouse completely. Um, but he did mention that with local laws, 92 and 94, that there's a solar mandate, but there's about a 60% subsidy and there's a 20 to 25% return on investment. So this is something that is going to both help you get to be more of a green building. It's going to help offset those carbon emissions. And if you do it in the right way, you're also going to be able to earn money on it. Um, again, I, I will send you over to the experts for that. Um, I'm happy to be involved in that conversation. I'm just not at the point now within this conversation where I feel comfortable enough to give you my, you know, four cents on it. If you want to, we can send a link or something uh, over as a follow-up to folks here. There is a clarification on the, the paperwork for the affidavit. They meant any follow-up paperwork. So like audits uh, and having a trail for prevailing wages. Gotcha. Um, you know, we've got, obviously we're doing payroll. Um, we use ADP for our payroll. So we've got everything audit, you know, traceable through ADP. We, we keep everything in our management reports and in our Dropbox for all of our buildings. So that's not a problem. Um, the one thing that might be a pain in the butt is to just make sure that whatever vendors you're using are actually, um, you know, prevailing wage um, compliant. And that could be something as simple as an email to say, you know, can you please verify uh, before coming into the building? I, we've been doing this, I think, our second year was 2023 doing it. I think it was February of 22 was the first, February of 23 was the second. I haven't seen one audit come through on it. Um, I'm not inviting it, but I just tell you that it's. it sounds like one of those things where the government puts it into place and then it could be a few years before they start to get their act together and figure out how they can actually look at these things. Yeah, knock on wood, right? No audits. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we have time for one last question here. So this question is around local law 11, which is the facade inspection um, requirements. Uh, the question is that this cycle is going to cost approximately two times what it did five years ago. Not the first building I've heard that from, and same with management companies as well. Um, and generally the cost of compliance is now such that it feels unsustainable for a building of certain size. Um, what are you seeing across your buildings? I completely agree. Um, I think this is going to be the difference between what work was done, what kinds of inspections were done in the last three cycles. What happened was um, there's three different ways. I know that we don't have that much time, so I'm going to do it very quickly. There's three ways that you can file it safe, unsafe, and swamp. Um, swamp is, uh, well, unsafe we want to avoid. And that's when you actually have to put up a bridge and then do the work immediately. You get a violation. Swamp is considered safe with a repair and maintenance program. And that's saying that, okay, we're not filing as unsafe, but we're we're acknowledging that there's work that we have to do either by the date that's in the report or the date of the next cycle, depending on what the city approves. The problem with local law 11 and the swarm filings was that buildings were carrying swarm across different cycles. They were going swarm on filing swarm on cycle six, cycle seven, cycle eight, and now cycle nine. And the city said, whoa, that's not great because you're just put kicking the can down the road. We don't necessarily have like a safe building. Um, so what they've done is they've created this environment where they want to make sure that you are not going swamp, swamp, swamp. They want to see swamp, swamp safe. You know, so if you've already filed swamp, you're now in this uh, predicament where not only do you have to file safe, which means that you have to do the work, 
costs are going up for the um, insurance for the companies, for the materials for the companies, for the labor for the companies. And are we talking about prevailing wage? I guess we're talking about prevailing wage, right? So this is all into play. So you're seeing all these pieces come together. And now the city is dictating that not only do you have to do your normal drops off of the building, but they're saying, okay, you have to go um, twice as long in that direction. You've got to open up this brick. You've got to show pictures of, you know, you actually standing there and inspecting. Mm. Um, so not only are is the work going to be mandated, but the inspections are going to be, let's say, twice as much. And when you inspect something twice as much, when you're looking for a problem twice as much, you're going to find probably twice as many problems or maybe some, you know, component of that. So everything is kind of compiling. Um, you're looking at the squeezing of every different side of this. And that's why you're looking at it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of buildings that deferred maintenance because of costs. I have um, a lot of them where, you know, we came into these properties as new management and they've not done work for 30 years. And suddenly they're looking at a $2 million, $3 million project in a building that's wow. 80 units. And how do you afford that? And this comes into that discussion that I just had before. Do you take new money? Um, do you take expensive line of credit money or do you take a quick assessment that's going to kill everybody because they can't afford $700, $1,000 a month for another two years? Um, and that's when you're starting to see the economics of the building change and people having to move out because you just can't sustain this. And that's just one project. Now do that with elevators because you have upgrades that you need to do for 2027. And now do that for the energy compliance, which you need for 2024 and 2030. So where is it going to stop? We don't know, but you're looking at just cost, cost, cost. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but it feels very doom and gloom right now. <laughs> well, well put. Um, Mark, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today. Do you have any final, maybe more uplifting thoughts? Well, I invite everybody, if you've made it this far, I have a podcast. It's called the NYC Real Estate Podcast. If you go to any of your podcast software, just type in NYC Real Estate Podcast. It's pretty easy. Um, I want to thank you. You know, if you want to reach out to me um, by email, just go, you can uh, go to our website, ebmg.com. You can see the logo there. Um, if you send it to the info at EBMG, it goes straight to me. Or if you find my email online, that's great. Um, always willing to help. I understand that, you know, a part of my job is outreach. And if there's anything that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to communicate with you just to get your business. I'm, I'm actually somebody that's here to help. Um, so if you need advice on anything or another ear or just another opinion, you know, feel free, anybody that's on this webinar to reach out to me. I'm fully available 24 seven. On that note, you, I will be sending a summary with this recording and also we'll loop everyone that's an attendee into an email with Mark and Terry's information. I see a couple follow-up questions for Mark, so you'll have an opportunity to connect with him afterwards about this. And to our attendees, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Good luck with your budgeting this year. <laughs> thank you, everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. you.